Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, the Lone Ranger got his start as a radio drama back in 1933, which makes the Lone Ranger like five years older than Superman, okay? And after its success as a radio drama, the Lone Ranger then became the first Western on TV. Some of you can remember the old black and white episodes of the Lone Ranger. Then it became a book, a series of books, actually, a series of comic books. And then finally, it made its way into a variety of movies. The most recent one, starring Johnny Depp as the Lone Ranger's sidekick Tonto. Uh, if you haven't seen it, don't. Okay? It's just, it's not worth the, uh, the price of the rental. Uh, on Netflix. But if, if you saw the, the Lone Ranger on TV, you might recall uh, that he wore a mask. And so the question is, why did he wear a mask? Uh, it was not because of coronavirus, okay? It, it was because, just a little backstory here, uh, the Lone Ranger originally was a Texas Ranger. He was a lawman. But he was ambushed by some of the bad guys, and the bad guys left him for dead. This is where Tonto comes in. Tonto found him and nursed him back to health. And the Lone Ranger took on a mask because he didn't want the bad guys to know that he was still alive and hot on their trail. So if you'll recall, if you've seen any, any of the old black and white episodes, after some heroic feat or rescue or whatever, each episode, he would leave behind his calling card, a silver bullet, and he would ride off into the sunset, and as he rode off, somebody would ask the question, if you remember the question, say it with me, who was that masked man? Who was that masked man? 2,000 years ago, that question was being frequently asked about a traveling rabbi in the Middle East who went by the name of Jesus. Jesus was not a fictional character like the Lone Ranger. In fact, we have four short uh, historical biographies of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, based upon eyewitness accounts of people who observed Jesus firsthand. Well, on one occasion, according to an account in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was on a fishing boat with some of his buddies, and a storm came up, a violent storm came up unexpectedly on the Sea of Galilee. And as the storm raged, these seasoned fishermen were terrified, Scripture says. But Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and the wind died down, and the rough waters became as smooth as glass. And one of the guys in the boat asked, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Another time, recorded in Acts chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralytic. But just before he restored the man's health and enabled him to walk again, Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven, which really honked off the religious leaders who were in the crowd. So one of them asked the question, probably a bit under his breath, who is this fellow? Who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then there was the time that Herod, a local ruler, got word that Jesus was doing miracles. You can read the story for yourself in Luke chapter 9. Now, Herod had just beheaded Jesus' PR man, John the Baptist. And Herod was scared. He thought, maybe this is John the Baptist back from the dead. And so Herod bellowed, I beheaded John. Who then? 
Who then is this I hear such things about? One final example of this frequently asked question. The final week of Jesus' earthly life, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey where he was later crucified and then raised from the dead. Matthew 21 tells us that when Jesus arrived in town, surrounded by a cheering crowd, the whole city was stirred, Matthew 21 says, and asked, who is this? Who is this? Now we're going to look at the amazing answer to this question today. Who is this man? And our text is going to be the New Testament epistle of Colossians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible near you, grab it. The wonderful thing of watching online is that even if you forgot your Bible, you could go to the next room and grab it quickly. So do that right now. Make sure you've got a Bible with you. And you don't have a written program, uh, but uh, there is an outline on your phone app. So if you have a CCC phone app, you can go to the sermon and check out the outline, even fill it in as we go along. We're in the second week of a five-part Lenten series that's going to take us right up to Holy Week, right up to Good Friday and Easter. The name of our series is Christ Above All, and we're going verse by verse through the opening two chapters of Colossians. The passage we're looking at today is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23, which tells us four incredible truths about Jesus. Four incredible truths about Jesus. And the the reason these truths are so amazing is because Jesus looked like any other first century guy in the Middle East, just a normal human being. But in a sense, his humanity kept people, in fact, it still keeps people from seeing his true identity, kind of like the Lone Ranger's mask. You know, we sing a carol, a Christmas carol, during the Christmas season that makes the same point. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. The second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh, God. Jesus' true identity masked by his humanity. And this is the first of the four truths that the Apostle Paul, author of the New Testament letter of Colossians, tells us about Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus is God. If you're filling in that phone app outline, Jesus is God. By the way, if you missed last week's sermon... Uh, I give you all the historical background that would help you understand this New Testament epistle of Colossians. So in a series like this, every week is going to build on the previous week. So if you miss a week, miss a sermon somewhere along the line, I encourage you to go back and watch it online. Now, if your Bible is open to Colossians 1, I'm going to begin with a couple of brief excerpts from verses 15 and 19. Uh, Many Bible scholars believe that this passage we're looking at today was a first century Christian hymn. In other words, this was a song that early believers would gather together and sing. Now, scholars aren't certain, you know, did Paul write this himself? You know, or maybe he downloaded it from Spotify and he liked it and he passed the lyrics on to the Colossians. I don't know. But verse 15, the lyrics of the song say, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. And then drop down to verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm trusting that you gave a hearty thanks be to God as you're watching online. Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God, verse 15. Now, the word image in our text, you know, the text is originally written in Greek, and the word image is akon, from which we get our English word icon. Icon. Now, I have icons, and so do you on the desktop of my computer. And what they do is they make visible things that are hidden, right? So, for example, one of my icons says docs. Okay, I've got hundreds of documents on my computer. You can't see them. If you fire up my computer and you look at the desktop, you don't see my documents. But if you push that little icon, docs, you get to see my documents. Okay, Jesus is the image. He is the, the icon of the invisible God. Do you want to see God? Paul says, click on Jesus. Now, there are other Bible verses that make this same point. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God but, the, but, but no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, this is a reference to Jesus, has made him known. Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it this way, the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, some skeptics object that you know, this is simply what the New Testament writers said about Jesus, but Jesus never made these kind of claims for himself never claimed to be God. Oh, no? Well, one day Jesus' disciple Philip said to him, hey, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus' response, John 14, verse 9, he says, anyone who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You know, there are many other examples in the New Testament biographies of Jesus where he makes similar claims. On one occasion, he tells a crowd that he existed before their patriarch, patriarch Abraham. Now, Abraham had lived 2,000 years earlier, and Jesus says to, to a group of Jewish, Jewish listeners, before Abraham was born, I am. You know, on other occasions, Jesus offered people eternal life. Come to me, I'll give you eternal life. On other occasions, Jesus accepted worship from people, which would have been unheard of in a culture where everyone knew the only one you're to worship is the one true living God. So Jesus' personal claims, they were so audacious, according to C.S. Lewis, the famous author, one-time atheist, that Lewis says, given what Jesus said about himself, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Now let me tease out C.S. Lewis's line of reasoning here. Okay, Jesus claims to be God. Those claims are either true or false, right? Lewis says, Let, let's assume for a moment that they're false claims. Jesus claims to be God, but he's not really God. So we've got two choices. He either knew those claims were false or he didn't. Now, if Jesus knew that his claims to be God were false, and he said them anyway, then Jesus was a liar. But that doesn't seem very likely because even Christianity's harshest critics aren't willing to call Jesus a liar. In fact, everybody says that Jesus was a great moral teacher, not a liar. So if Jesus claimed to be God and those claims were false and it wasn't because he knew them to be false and it could only be, 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 be because he didn't know. So in other words, he was deluded. But he wasn't just a little bit deluded. I mean, this isn't like a guy who says he's a great golfer when he's not a great golfer. We're talking about, about a guy who says he's God Almighty, come in the flesh. And, and if he's deluded about that, then friends, he's crazy. He's a lunatic, which is why C.S. Lewis concludes, if Jesus claims to be God and the claims are false, 
If he knows them to be false, he's a liar. If he doesn't know them to be false, he's a lunatic. The only other choice is that maybe the claims were true, which would make Jesus Lord. Lord God Almighty. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 and take another look at verse 19. It says, Jesus was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, to dwell in Jesus. Bible scholars point out that Paul's a bit redundant here when he talks about all God's fullness. Paul could have just said God's fullness, because after all, fullness means fullness, right? There's no such thing as partial fullness or half fullness. So when Paul says all God's fullness dwells in Jesus, he's emphasizing the point that everything that God is, everything, all God's attributes, all God's abilities, they can be found in Jesus. They can be found. Nothing that makes God God is missing. Now, Paul's language here calls to mind a story from the Old Testament. 900 BC, the temple is being dedicated, this magnificent structure. There's a grand opening. And at the end of the celebration, Solomon leads the great congregation in prayer. And as he's praying, the presence of God descends on the temple in the form of a cloud. And it's so dense that it fills the temple. The temple is so filled by the presence of God, no one can even go inside. All the fullness of God dwelt in the temple. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Back in 1670, a French mathematician and inventor, a theologian by the name of Blaise Pascal wrote, he said, there is an infinite abyss in every one of our lives that can only be filled by an infinite God. It takes an infinite God to fill an infinite abyss. Have you discovered that for yourself? You know, there is a God-sized hole in your life. And the, listen, friend, the only thing that can fill a God-sized hole is God. Now, some of us try to fill that hole with other things. We try to fill it with our, with our job or a boyfriend or travel or sports or our grandkids. We, we make these things our number one priority. We give them our best time, our focused attention. We spend money on these things, and they do give us a bit of a buzz, but they can't fill a God-sized hole. They can't. So what if we made Jesus our number one priority? But what if the mega goal of our lives was to get to know Jesus, to serve Jesus, to worship Jesus, to love Jesus? All the, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, which means that Jesus would then fill our God-sized hole. Is Jesus your number one priority? And a number of years ago, I read an article, an interview in Sports Illustrated with a Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, Kurt Warner. And Kurt had just won a a huge game, a come-from-behind victory in the closing seconds of the fourth quarter. And so the reporter wanted to know, you know, how could you stay so calm in the midst of that? I mean, you had the the defense breathing down on you. You had the fans screaming. You knew, knew that the clock was ticking away. How could you be so calm? Kurt Warner looked at him and he said, this is my summary, he said, well, I'm a Christ follower which means that the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus, not football. 
And so he says, that's why I don't get rattled even in the pressures of a ball game. My number one priority is Jesus. Could you say something like that? Could, could you say you know, the number one priority of my life is Jesus? It's not football or whatever. And that's why I don't get rattled. That's why I don't get undone, even, even in a situation like we're currently facing in our culture today. Because all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and Jesus lives in me. Jesus wants to be your number one priority. Number two, Jesus is creator. Number one, he's God. Number two, he's creator. Go back to Colossians chapter one. Pick it up again in verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God. Now listen, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Now, some skeptics say that this line proves that Jesus couldn't possibly be God because he was born. So he was a created being. Paul calls him the firstborn over all creation. Not God, created being. I mean, this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses have been saying for years. Are they right? You remember back in 2003, best-selling author Dan Brown wrote a blockbuster book called The Da Vinci Code that was made into a Tom Hanks movie. If you've seen the movie, and this is one you, you could rent on Netflix and enjoy but the, the movie begins with a murder in a museum in Paris. And, and the people behind the murder, there's a religious organization, a clandestine, a secret religious organization that is trying to stifle some information. And it's information about Jesus. And the information points out that Jesus was only a man. And that all of the first century, the early sources prove that he was nothing more than a man. That it wasn't until 300 years after his death when, when some religious leaders got together at a council, the Nicene Council. And they decided, well, let's make him God. And it was solely for political purposes that this move was made. Really? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians less than a generation after Jesus' death, AD 60, and Paul called Jesus the image of the invisible God, the one in whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell. So what are we to make of this expression, first born over all creation? Well, before I explain what this expression means, you know, let me, let me point out an obvious reason why it doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being, okay? Look again, got your Bible open in front of you, look again at the opening line of verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Question, how many things were created by Jesus? And this is not a trick question. How many things? All. All things. Okay, if Jesus, follow this, if Jesus created all things and yet Jesus himself was a created being, then Jesus created Jesus. How is this for making sense? It's nothing but gibberish. You know, this is obviously not what the Apostle Paul was saying in Colossians 1. So here's the deal. The expression firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, was sometimes used in the Bible to convey a sense of rank. 
First in rank. Not first in birth order. First in rank. In other words, it's another way of saying the greatest. Okay, the greatest. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Listen to what God says about King David in Psalm 89. 89 verse 27. God says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most excellent of the kings of the earth. Okay, if you know your Old Testament history, was David Israel's first king? Now Saul was. But David was Israel's greatest king. He was the most excellent of the kings on the earth. And so God calls him, refers to him as his firstborn king. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's telling us that Jesus is the greatest being in the universe. Jesus is supreme. Why? Because Jesus is the awesome creator. Jesus created, verse 16, all things. In fact, look again at what all things includes as verse 16 continues. Paul says, I'm talking about things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Bible scholars tell us that Paul is making the point here that Jesus not only created the physical things we can see, he created the spiritual things we can't see, things like angels and demons, which are referred to here by the terms thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. Now, why is Paul making this point? Well, you might remember last week when I was laying out the the, the backdrop, the context for Colossians, I said Paul wrote this New Testament epistle to combat some bad theology, some heresy that was cropping up among Christ followers in Colossae. Some of the bad theology had to do with angels. There were people in Colossae who were making too big a deal of angels. They were even teaching that angels were the the preferred way to approach God Almighty. In fact, they were were even encouraging people to, some of them, to worship angels. Well, Paul believed in angels, but he believed that angels pale in comparison to Jesus. Jesus. Because angels were created by Jesus. So angels aren't the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. Why why go to God through angels when you can go directly to God, the Son, Jesus Christ? Now, does Paul's corrective here, does it have any relevance for our lives today? I, I remember some years ago coming across a local headline in the newspaper The Daily Herald, the headline read, Naperville author urges us to find our own angels. The article was about a woman who hosts an internet radio show called Angel Talk. And she's written a best-selling book about angels, and she's collected over uh, 350 angel statues, and she recommends that each of us learn the name of our own angels so that in times of crisis, you know, we could call out, Jacob, help me, or Maria, help me. Are you kidding me? You know, why would I call on Jacob? Why would I call on Maria when I could call on Jesus? Jesus created Jacob and Maria and every other angel that exists. You know, we don't have to approach God through angels or through saints or even through Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. We can go directly to the Creator the one who created angels and saints and Mary. We can go to Jesus. We can go to Jesus. One last insight about Jesus as as creator. 
Uh, Please note, look again at the last line of verse 16, that all things were created not only through him or by him, but also for him. You see that? For Jesus. So I was created for Jesus. You were created for Jesus. That, That means the purpose of our lives is to live for Jesus. Back when I was a college student, I worked for the summer in uh, a company that made industrial-sized fuses. I've told this story before, but I love this story. So I worked for this company in the laboratory, and we did the special projects. We did the special order jumbo fuses. And the foreman in the laboratory was a crusty old coot named Freddie. And Freddie, if you got on his bad side, he had a, a quick trigger temper, and he would ream you out with cuss words. He would use words you never heard before. And one of Freddie's biggest pet peeves is, is if you ever used a tool for a purpose for which it was not designed. Okay, if you used a tool for a purpose it was not designed for and you broke that tool, you better hide the pieces and hope Freddie never found them. Okay, so one day I'm working in the lab and I'm trying to pry something open with Freddie's favorite screwdriver. You see where this is going? Because you know a screwdriver is not meant for prying, right? So I snapped it in two. Okay, and I decided I would just try honesty. So I took the pieces of the screwdriver, I went directly to Freddie, and I said, Freddie, I broke your screwdriver because I was using it for a purpose it was not intended for. I broke it. And immediately, everybody stopped what they were doing in the lab, and they looked at us, and they sucked air. (gasps) And we were all waiting to hear, what would Freddie say? Well, evidently, my my honesty caught him off guard. All Freddie could say was, well, don't do that again. That was it. Don't do that again. That was it. We were made for a purpose. Jesus created us. We're not only made by him, we're made for him, for a purpose. Which means, friends, that we get up and we go through our day asking the question, you know, what purpose, creator, God can I fulfill in this situation I'm currently in? How do you want me to respond to what's going on around me, to this conversation, to things that are falling apart? You know, what would you have me do? It's plain foolish, friends. In fact, it's a little bit arrogant for us to go through our lives living according to our purposes, our plans, as if we're our own creators. There is a creator. His name is Jesus. And he wants you to live for him. Number three. Jesus is head. Jesus is head. Go back to Colossians 1. We're up to verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Okay, before we look at the word that Paul uses to describe Jesus in these verses, what two expressions does Paul use to describe Jesus' followers? If you've got your own Bible, you can circle these. Jesus calls us the body, and he calls us the church. Uh, These two expressions underscore the corporate, the community nature of our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes people say to me, well, my faith in God or my faith in, in Jesus is a private matter. No, it's not. You know, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then you're a member of his body. You're automatically connected with other believers, other body parts. You're not an ear or a nose or a kneecap floating around out there. 
You know, you're also part of Jesus' church. Now, the, the word church means literally a gathered assembly of people. A gathered assembly of people. Something else I hear from folks. So they'll say to me, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You know, I could worship God on the weekends, on the golf links, or at my son's soccer game, or at the shopping outlet. Really? What part of gathered assembly don't you understand? See, if we're genuinely connected to Jesus, we're going to regularly connect with Jesus' body, with the church. You know, that's why we can hardly wait for this coronavirus to pass and us be able to gather physically once again on campuses, at weekend services, and rub shoulders with each other. I I love the fact that technology allows us to gather online during this crisis. But we're all looking forward to the day when we could be back together as the church. So what role does Jesus play in his body? Look at verse 18 again. He's the head. Now, what does the head of a body do? Well, the head animates the body, right? The head gives the body life. The head gives the body direction. Let's start with life. Look at the second half of verse 18. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, Paul's not saying that Jesus was the first person to ever rise from the dead. Again, that's not what firstborn means in this context. Paul was well uh, aware of the fact that in the Old Testament, there had been a number of people raised from the dead. He was aware of the fact that Jesus himself raised his friend Lazarus from the dead just a week before Jesus was crucified and later resurrected. So Jesus is not first in a chronological sense from the dead. However, Jesus' resurrection was qualitatively different than all previous resurrections. In a a sense, it was was a first. You could take Lazarus' resurrection, for example. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but in the same old body, a body that soon died again. Jesus was raised with a glorified body and continues to live today, and he will go on living throughout all eternity. He's firstborn in that sense. That's what Paul means when he says, Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And by calling Jesus the the head, the head of his body, the church, Paul is indicating that Jesus is able to give this same resurrection life to everyone who surrenders to him. 1 John 5, verse 12 puts it this way, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the sort of life that Jesus offers? Do you have a spiritual life that began the moment you surrendered to Christ, an eternal life that will go on forever and ever? Jesus is the head who gives life, who gives that kind of life. Jesus is the head who also gives direction. You ever use the expression, yeah, I was running around like a chicken with its head cut off. You ever heard that? Okay, what does it mean? <laughs> I googled it. All right, so what I discovered was this. When a chicken gets slaughtered, you, you could lop off its head, and it may still run around, flap its wings for up to 30 seconds. So, But you need to understand that it's not because it's still alive. The minute its head is severed from its body, it's a goner. So it's not that it has life, it's that it has adrenaline in its muscle tissue, which causes it to do that. 
You see where I'm going with this? We can run around on earth for a number of years. You can live to 15 or 40 or 65 or 80, and, and all the while, you can look like you're living. But if you're not connected with Jesus as the head, you're actually spiritually dead, and one day you'll be eternally dead. And not only that, all that running around and flapping your wings in this world, it's directionless. You need to surrender your, yourself to Jesus for life. And, and, and you need to find your way around Jesus' word for direction. Jesus is the head. Is he your head? Is Jesus your head? Fourth and finally, Jesus is reconciler. So back to Colossians 1, one last time. Pick it up in verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile. You can underscore that. Reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. There we have it again. Underline it. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Jesus is reconciler. And Paul says that we have a broken relationship with God. We, we may think, as many people do, that we're on friendly terms with the Almighty. Paul says that's not the case. I mean, look at the expressions he, he piles up in verse 21 to describe our condition. He said, you're alienated from God. You're enemies in your minds. He speaks of your evil behavior. So is Paul exaggerating the bad shape we're in? Not if we're honest with ourselves. We, we have constantly pushed God away. We have put other things as first place, first priorities in our lives. We've rejected in our minds the righteous standards of God's holy word. You know, we don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about loving our enemies, especially if we're honked off at somebody right now. You know, we, want, we don't want to hear what Scripture has to say about giving our money to the poor or reserving sex for marriage or setting aside time each week to worship Him. You know, quit telling us what to do, God. We're, we're constantly and flagrantly disobeying God with our gossip, our anger, our materialism, our dishonesty, our lust, our bigotry. The truth is we have been at war with God, actively or passively or maybe a little of both. So how does Jesus fix things? How does Jesus reconcile that relationship? Look again at the last line of verse 20. Paul says that Jesus reconciles us to God by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let me explain. The consequences of our alienation from God, the consequence is death. God is the source of life, and we've alienated God. We have disconnected from life. So the consequence is death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. 
But God took the initiative in mending this broken relationship, friends. God sent his son, Jesus, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross, paying the the penalty for our sins, dying the death we deserved to die. And then Jesus was raised from the dead so that he now offers forgiveness and new life and reconciliation with God to everyone who will surrender to him. You want to be reconciled to God? Surrender to Jesus. You know, I remember some time ago when Britt Hume got in trouble for giving this advice to Tiger Woods. You might know Britt Hume as a famous newscaster and Tiger Woods, of course, a professional golfer. And at the time, all this news was breaking about Tiger Woods' many marital affairs. It was kind of embarrassing for the, for the golfer. And so Britt offered him this counsel. He said, you know, if you, you'll go to Jesus, he can forgive you and he can reconcile you. And he insinuated this is the sort of thing that Tiger wasn't likely to discover in his Buddhism. Well, it hit the fan. The media went ballistic. They said, what a horrible thing to say. This is religious bigotry. You know, MSNBC said, these are embarrassing comments. Comedy Central did a whole spoof on it. The Washington Post said, these are the most ridiculous remarks of the year. But you know what? Britt was telling Tiger the truth. Because only Jesus, only Jesus has given his life to take the penalty for our sins. So we could be forgiven. So that we could be given new life so that we could be reconciled to God. No other religious leader has ever even claimed to do that for you. By the way, Britt wasn't being arrogant either because he went on to tell Tiger, he said, I had to do this myself back in 1998. And then he explained in 1998, he had lost his son. His son had died to suicide. And he said, I was a desperate man. My life was broken. And I needed forgiveness, and I found it in Christ. Have you ever confessed your sins to Jesus? Have you ever said, based on what you did on the cross for me, I want the forgiveness and the new life that you offer. I want to be reconciled to God. Now, one of the telltale signs of whether you've made that decision or or not is found in the closing verse of today's scripture. Look again at verse 23. Paul Paul says, if you've made this decision, if you've surrendered to Christ, you'll know it. And the, the way you'll know it is by continuing in the faith, by continuing to walk with Jesus, continuing to make Jesus the king of your life, seeking to follow him. He says, you're reconciled if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You know, occasionally I'll hear people who are not walking with Jesus, they'll say, yeah, but you know, back when I was a kid or back when I was in high school or five years ago or at a Christmas Eve service, I surrendered my life to Christ. So again, that's good. I'm good. Paul says, if you continue in your, see the test, the true test of the genuineness of your surrender to Christ is continuing on in following him. And I would say to you today, if you're not following Jesus, then go back and get it right. You know, get on your knees when this broadcast comes to its conclusion. Find a quiet place and say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to become the savior of my life. You are God. You are creator. 
You are the one who made me for a purpose. You know, I want to be all in. I want to be yours. You're the one who reconciles me. Would you pray together with me? And when we're done praying, before we close our our broadcast, we're going to collect gifts. Yeah. (laughs) Not by passing an offering bag, but I just want to remind you again that on your screen, you could touch the place that says give or click on the, the, the give. And I would encourage you, become a recurring giver, especially during this time of crisis when Christ's community could be hard hit as, as well. And we, we just you know, count on the generosity of God's people during this time. So I encourage you to become a regular giver. I encourage you to follow through on those whole 90 habits you want to develop in terms of uh, becoming a generous person. Let me pray for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll close with a song, and uh, then we'll see you online. Don't forget to check out the, uh, the updates that we offer each week to find out what's happening at Christ Community Church. Let me pray for you. Uh, Lord God, what a great sermon for you to schedule on a week where uh, the crises have heated up like they have. You know, how good to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, that he's God, that he's creator, that he's head, that he's reconciler. That we could say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, we put our hope fully on you. We pray in your name. Amen.